Dear friends in Christ, we read from God's Word this morning in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. This is God's word before us today. May the Holy Spirit bless us as we consider the theme, Why We Do Not Forbid Water. First of all, because God's grace is for all. And second, because the word that powers baptism and the Holy Spirit works through that word. In the Lutheran Church, we confess these two things about baptism. Number one, baptism is not just plain water. It is water used by God's command and connected with God's word. Number two, baptism works the forgiveness of sins delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe, as the words and promises of God declare. These two statements come right out of Luther's small catechism. They're not complicated. They're not difficult to understand. They're based in biblical truth. You can see how impactful they are for Lutherans, as the hymn we just sang use some of the very same terminology, speaking to death and the devil about what it means now that we have been baptized in Christ. One phrase of significance in these statements is at the very end, as the words and promises of God declare. We base our teaching about baptism on the words and promises of God. We use the word of God because we want to be able to know the truth. When we teach baptism, we want to be able to say what is actually true from God. And so we have to use his word. We don't use the words of men. We use the words of God. But we also use the promises of God. Because baptism is one of those things that God has given us that defies our understanding. No matter how much we study it, no matter how well we know it from the Bible, even as we use the word of God, baptism is still something that goes above our understanding. It's a miracle. And so we also must rely and trust in the promises of God as we use his word. It's important that we remember that last phrase as we study what we teach about baptism today because it's really all about that. It's what the words and promises of God declare. And it's important that we study baptism because we want to know what it is and God expects us to know how to use it properly according to that word. This is a struggle for us today in our day and age because there are so many different teachings about baptism. If you zoom back to the time of the Reformation with Martin Luther, when he was kind of giving a testimony against the Roman Catholic Church and he was kind of coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant movement was forming, at that time, there weren't all these differences of teaching on baptism. There was one baptism in the church. One baptism that had gone all the way back to the very beginning of the New Testament church when God first gave this gift to his children. 
So this idea that we're up against today, that we're giving a testimony against today of all these different ideas and understandings about baptism, that's really kind of a new concept in the church. And that's why it's important that we in our generation really understand and know what baptism is. To study in preparation for this sermon, I went on Google and I just searched in a five-mile radius of our church different churches that are out there. And I went to their website and I looked at what they teach about baptism, if they say anything about baptism at all on their teachings. And I found three examples just within five miles of our church. Consider these differences with what we just showed as our confession. Church number one says this about baptism. We believe that baptism in water is the command of Christ for all believers and that it should be by immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and shall be administered only to those who give evidence of being born again. The word immersion there, if you're not familiar with that, means to completely submerge the person under the water, which would be different than using a baptismal font like ours in our church. Church number two, their confession is this. Christian baptism by immersion is the testimony of the believer. It symbolizes our union with Christ in death to sin and in resurrection to a new life. Church number three, baptism does not make you a believer. It shows that you are already one. Baptism does not save you. Only your faith in Christ does that. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It's the outward symbol of the commitment you made in your heart. Each of these examples, just within five miles of our church, are vastly different than what we confess and teach today from God's Word. And these differences can really be narrowed down to three things. Number one, the idea that baptism is just an outward symbol, like the confession said, like a wedding ring. Not that baptism is effective at all, but that it's just a symbol. Number two, that baptism is only meant for those who already believe, basically for adults. It's not meant for young children. It's not meant for those who don't know anything about the Christian faith yet. And number three, only baptism by immersion is valid. These three principles kind of summarize the differences that we see in our world today and in the Christian community as it concerns the teaching of baptism. And as we think about that phrase that we pinpointed, we believe and teach about baptism, that it is effective, that the Holy Spirit does work through it. It's not just a symbol. We believe and teach about baptism, that it is for everyone. It's not dependent on our prior faith. And we believe and teach that baptism is not about how the water is applied, but simply that the water is used with God's word. We believe and teach those things as the words and promises of God declare. We look at these examples of the differences of teaching and baptism in our world today, and we could probably say, not because the words and promises of God declare that, but because of my personal observations and experiences, what they declare. This is how we start to see that these differences in baptism are not minor points of doctrine. They're not just areas for churches to show what makes them different than another church, but they're major pivotal aspects of our faith. 
As we look at our text for today, the book of Acts references baptism more than any other book in the Bible. That's because at the time period of the book of Acts, God had given this gift to the church. It wasn't an Old Testament thing. It happened as Jesus came on the scene. John the Baptist was the first one to start doing it. Jesus himself baptized others with his disciples. And the practice continued on to the early church as we see in the book of Acts. But it's difficult sometimes for us to see what God is teaching about baptism because what he tells us about it isn't really in a doctrinal point. It's not as if God goes down A, B, C, and so on that this is what baptism is. What we learn about baptism comes from the stories of people's lives, how it was used in their lives, like our text today with an individual named Cornelius as Peter came to him and baptized him and his household. These are the kind of stories that help us get a better understanding of baptism, and we have to piece them all together to have a full understanding of what it is. This example from Cornelius is a battleground today for the different teachings about baptism in present-day churches. Those who see baptism merely as a symbol, only for adult believers, and, and only to be done by immersion, they see that in verse 47 of our text. Verse 47, Peter answers and says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The idea proposed here in this passage is that baptism was only given to Cornelius once he had received the Holy Spirit. So the conclusion then from that passage is that that's the way it should be in our lives. We shouldn't baptize infants. We shouldn't baptize little children. We should only baptize believers. Well, it's true that in this situation, Cornelius was an adult. And the other Gentiles that were baptized had come to faith. They had received the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean baptisms only for those situations. There are even cases that we as Lutherans in our church, we baptize adults. We baptize people who already believe in Jesus, who have already come to faith. But that's not really the question, is it? The question really is, does God work through baptism? Because if God works through baptism, if he's there, if the Holy Spirit is active, what does it matter, the age of the recipient, the knowledge of the recipient? If it's God who's doing the work, even when an adult is baptized, God can still be forgiving sin, can still be strengthening faith. Therefore, we look at the broader context too, not just one passage. But we ask the same question that Peter asked. Can anyone forbid water? We believe and confess that God's answer to that question is no. Not just because of the person who's there. It wasn't about Cornelius. But about what God promises and what God declares. There are two observations in our text that help us see and understand that we should not limit baptism, whether it be to the recipient or whether it be to its effectiveness. Baptism is not limited by God. The first observation is this. This entire story about Cornelius is about showing the expansiveness of God's grace, not narrowing it. There are two, two groups of individuals in our text. 
those who were circumcised, that would be Jewish believers in the church, and Gentiles. The shock and the surprise of our text really didn't have anything to do with baptism itself, but it was the fact that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. The Jewish believers were shocked by that because they were used to the Old Testament where they were God's chosen people, they were God's nation, they alone had God's kingdom. And so they were surprised. How is it that this man, Cornelius, this Gentile, and, and the other members of his household, how is it that they could receive the Holy Spirit? The surprise had nothing to do with baptizing them. And God's message was clear. My grace is not limited. My grace is not narrow. It's expansive. And that was what he was first of all communicating through this. This was even a shock to Peter. Earlier in the book of Acts, the chapter before, God gave Peter the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with unclean animals in it. And you probably remember what God told Peter. He said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. But Peter, as a good Jewish individual, knowing the Old Testament, knowing the ceremonial law, objected to God. Because of that sensitivity, Peter didn't think he could eat an unclean animal. He thought he'd be transgressing against God. But God declared to Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. You can see how God was setting Peter up for this interaction with Cornelius. Because in the next chapter, chapter 11 of Acts, Peter's immediately put on the defensive by the other Jewish Christians and saying, how could you possibly baptize these Gentiles? And Peter told them what God had showed him, what God had taught him. God's telling us his grace is not narrow. His grace is not to be limited. What he has cleansed, we must not call common. The application, of course, is not just to animals, but to people. God has cleansed all people through the justification of his son on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. When we talk about that in church, we say, not just for my sins, but for the sins of the whole world. God's grace has no limit. What God has cleansed, we must not call common. So the first observation we see in this text is that God is not trying to limit something. He's showing the expansiveness of his love. And in baptism, the gift that he's given us, he doesn't want us to limit it only to adults, only to Christians. He doesn't want us to limit it by saying, no, 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 the water must only be applied this way or it's not effective. God's telling us he wants us to extend that grace freely to all. The second observation is that although adult people were baptized in our text, what we learn about the Holy Spirit's work fits perfectly with the biblical understanding of baptism. Remember, as Lutherans, we confess that God teaches what he does about baptism through his words and promises. It's the word of God that makes baptism effective. It's the promises of God that give me confidence and hope in baptism. When someone asks me, why do you have confidence in your baptism? I'm not going to say because I was a believer when I was baptized or because I was dunked under the water all the way when I was baptized. 
My confidence comes from the promises of God as connected to baptism. That he tells me that that baptism washes away my sin, that he unites me with Christ, that it makes me a child of God. To make anything else besides God's work through Christ, our hope and confidence in baptism is to take the focus off our Savior. Notice how our text begins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. It was the word of God that brought the Holy Spirit that day. Before Cornelius and his family even came to the waters of baptism, it was the word of God that they heard declared first. And that's how the Holy Spirit came to them. As we apply this to our lives, we could say that the focus of our faith should be on the Word of God. And a biblical teaching of baptism pushes us right in that direction. It would be something if we could say everything there is to say about baptism. If I could stand up here this morning and explain everything about baptism to you so that you had no more questions or concerns or no more accusation from the world about what baptism is or isn't, it'd be one thing if we could do that. That might be nice. But if, that was cap- if we're capable of that, would we really be trusting in God's word or in our own word? It's like that with every miracle in the Bible, isn't it? Every miracle defies our understanding. It oftentimes defies our experience as well. And so God is telling us, he gives us these things to accept, not by our word, but by his. And another way of saying that is we accept it by faith. We accept it by trusting in God. And that's what we believe about baptism. The words and promises of God declare this. We're not confident of it because we can explain every little detail out and that it makes perfect rational sense to our understanding and what we've personally experienced in our lives. Certainly baptism doesn't. Every time we have a baptism, it is shocking and amazing that God is actually doing what he promises to do in such a simple and ordinary thing. But even with Peter and Cornelius, it wasn't about their understanding. The Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word of God. When we keep our focus on the word of God, we keep the Holy Spirit close. We keep his work active in our lives and in our hearts. Furthermore, as you think about baptism, it was Peter who taught in the book of Acts on Pentecost Sunday in chapter 2. He said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter also wrote in his first epistle, he said, Baptism, which corresponds to the flood, a picture of the flood, now saves you. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why would Peter, who said that baptism saves the recipient through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, why would Peter now make it a symbol? only. 
why would Peter, who declared that baptism is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as God will call, why would he now limit it to adult believers only? When we consult God's word and we're led by the Holy Spirit, the various and different teachings about baptism melt away and we see clearly what the truth is. Like we started with, our confessions as Lutherans from the small catechism, they're incredibly simple, not difficult to understand at all. It's the sinful pride that wants to make it harder to accept. But it's all based on the words and promises of God. But this really isn't about different churches. It's not really about different teachings. When we keep our focus on the words and promises of God, we don't just argue doctrine as an end to itself. We want to preserve the hope that we have. God gave the gift of baptism to you to more intimately communicate his word of hope and promise to your life so that you would have abiding hope, living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ when faced with this fallen and desperate world. That's why we contend for the faith. The gift of baptism is not a regulation or law that a believer must follow. Rather, it's a gracious promise of God. It's his, the merciful Heavenly Father coming to us as prodigal sons and daughters and welcoming us back into his home. Baptism wasn't given by God to bring the focus back to your life. Whether you're good enough, whether you're wise enough, whether you're strong enough to receive God's favor. Baptism's meant to impart the undeserved grace of Jesus, the only Savior of your life, the only one who's taken all of those sins away. To summarize, baptism's not about our faithfulness, but God's. To contend for the true and biblical teaching of baptism today is not shallow tribalism or petty division. It is a vital consideration for our faith that affects each and every one of us in our life and walk with God. Let our confession remain with Peter and Cornelius. Can anyone forbid water? Through Jesus Christ, the answer is no. Let us joyfully and confidently confess that in our lives and share that with, with a world that needs hope through Jesus. Amen. Please rise.